3: A very interesting survey out from the conference board. 900 CEOs worldwide asked about their biggest worries for 2021. I'd say it made for some, ve- some very nice light reading right before bedtime. Well, he had to read it. Adaman Zildirim is Director of Economics and Global Research Chair at the conference board. Adaman, tell us about the nightmares that were in this survey.
1: Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on the program. Uh yes, I I'm not sure it's quite uh you know nighttime reading because you know we were asking about what keeps CEOs up at night. Um and uh you know globally, you know what's the the, the top of the list is really the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the vaccines, availability, and distribution. Um, And uh, that's uh, much more important than other uh, business concerns and business challenges. Um, They're also uh, really looking at recession risk uh, among the top three uh, as a uh, worry about uh, the coming year. Uh, So that suggests that CEOs don't think that the economy is out of the woods yet.
2: All right, Ottoman, how about the the new administration, the Biden administration that obviously manifests a whole uh, change in a, a way a lot of these corporations will be operating over the next four years? How do they frame that out?
1: So um, you know, we fielded the survey after the uh, elections in November, just to make sure that we could kind of get the the pulse of what uh, business leaders are thinking about it. Uh, especially in the U.S., uh, CEOs uh, are worried about uh, the outlook for taxes and regulation, uh, and much less about uh, global trade uh, diversions or dis- disruptions, and and also less about geopolitics. Um, so I think they'll be looking at the business environment and how it might be affected by, uh, changes in corporate taxes in the outlook for regulations. But I think, uh, generally, um, uh, clarity, uh, and, uh, consistency and more certainty about the environment is going to be welcome.
3: And Adam, just give us an idea of who these nine hundred CEOs are. Obviously, you don't have to mention companies, but are we talking about the the, the, the S and P five hundred, or is there a good selection from across the market cap ranges?
1: Yeah, uh, it is a global survey, uh, and there is a mix of uh, large cap and um, uh, smaller companies. Uh, there, there really is kind of a wide range, uh, but uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of the uh, Fortune 500 are going to be uh, represented there. Well,
3: and so, just to follow on that, then you know, did the smaller companies worry about other things than the bigger companies? So would they have been more worried, for example, about demand coming back?
1: Uh, There is uh, a lot of concern about uh, changing consumer uh, behaviors as well as about uh, uh, global demand, uh, consumer demand, Um, especially uh, for China and Japan, which I think are more dependent on global demand. uh, The recession worries uh, uh, were a higher rank. Uh, so I think uh, there is still concern about that. Uh, there's uh, uh, more um, time will be devoted to understanding how consumer demand and consumer behaviors are going to be changing uh, as a result of uh, what we're going through with the pandemic.
2: So, Audubon, how about returning to work? That's on the minds I would certainly of employees. Mm-hmm. How about the what are the, uh, the CEOs and the C-suite? How do they think about getting people back to work in a post-COVID world?
1: Yeah, especially for the U.S. CEOs, uh, there is a desire to bring workers uh, back um, and they really want to uh, get back to business. But I think there is a recognition that uh, it is going to be a different uh, world uh, coming back. Um, when When we ask about you know are you going to increase your remote workforce or decrease your remote remote workforce, uh, the responses are really neutral so there 's kind of an equilibrium in uh, the the proportion of the uh, workforce that 's working remotely, uh, but there is a desire to uh, get back to work and come back to the office um, but it 'll be it 'll be a different uh, environment because at the same time they 're really thinking about. Uh, reducing uh, the office footprint, right? So for commercial uh, real estate, I think we'll also see some differences in terms of the the size of those offices and maybe the location of those offices.
3: Just a few headlines coming out from Airbus that I think is worth mentioning in this context. Airbus saying that production rates will remain lower for longer and that commercial Aircraft. that market will recover by 2023 to 2025. I mean, seriously, Ottoman, are we looking at another three to five years before the commercial aircraft market resumes?
1: Well, uh, especially since uh, these CEOs are saying that uh, they're looking at reducing business travel, uh, that seems consistent, uh, and a recovery would take... Uh, quite a long time, I think, to to really come back to the previous levels that we've seen. Uh, the general consensus seems to be there'll be there there will be less uh, business travel, um, and it's hard to see you know how um, uh, you know uh, tourism or uh, personal travel is uh, leisure travel is going to pick up uh, in the near term.
3: Mm. Well, you know, Adam, <laughs> Paul, just to point out that the United CEO had just said that the turning yeah. point is coming on travel demand.
1: Yeah, it's interesting.
2: I think, as Adam says, I can see leisure coming back uh, before uh, business. I don't know, as soon as I get my shot, the next day I'm on a plane, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Adnan Ozeldrum, thank you so much for joining us, Director of Economic Research and Global Research Chair at the Conference Board, uh, giving us the highlights from uh, uh, their survey of global CEOs. And uh, it'll be interesting to see, Vani, when you get fully inoculated. Will you hop on a plane?
3: Well, uh, you know, no, because I'll clearly be covering for you because you'll be on that plane, Paul. But <laughs> KLM good. cutting as many as 1,000 jobs just now because yeah, the travel exactly. recovery there is uh, fading. So yeah, exactly. President Joe Biden's first day executive order confirmed what we had been anticipating, that TC Energy's Keystone XL pipeline is delayed again and could be scrapped. That might mean wasting an investment of $1.4 billion on the part of that company. Let's bring in now our Liam Denning, energy, mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Liam You know, the corporation obviously might lose a lot of money on this particular anticipated investment, but is it a good thing that the XL pipeline doesn't go ahead?
4: Uh, I think the Keystone XL pipeline is just one of those things that was conceived in a very different environment. So it was first proposed back in July of 2008, which uh, you may remember coincided with the all-time high in oil prices you know back then we were obsessed with uh peak oil supply we were worried that oil was running out um and uh we just live in a, a very different world now um you know oil supply is abundant um particularly right now in the context of uh, the COVID pandemic um we uh we've seen a, a you know, a huge resurgence in oil production in the U.S. in the intervening 13 years. Um, and the other thing that's changed is, is just the, the political environment, both around climate policy, but also, um, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008 and in the wake of the pandemic, uh, the, role of, um, the role of government in, in kind of setting outcomes.
2: Liam, just it's been 13 years. Refresh our memory here. The Keystone XL pipeline, it was taking oil from where? To where?
4: So it was an expansion of an existing pipeline network essentially to take uh, oil from Alberta, mainly from the uh, oil sands uh, up there in Canada, uh, down to refineries and export terminals on the Gulf Coast and also into the Midwest. So it was effectively a a Canadian um, oil uh, export project.
3: Yeah, and I mean this isn't the only one, quote unquote, at risk. Right, there are other pipelines in the sites of the White House. Not all of the most recent ones, but some.
4: Yes, there are. There are others, certainly, um, in the uh, in the White House's sites. Uh, clearly, Keystone was especially vulnerable because um, it needed that uh, permit uh, because it's a cross border pipeline, and also because of the way. Uh, it had essentially become uh, something in the prerogative of, of the president uh, themselves. So, um, you know, we saw Obama block it, we saw Trump uh, revive it, and now we've seen Biden block it again, all at the stroke of a pen.
2: So, what do, what does this say about President Biden's energy policy, Liam? What do we really know? What is what's the what are the folks in in the U.S. energy business? What are they thinking about? Uh, President Biden administration?
4: Well, we already know that Biden uh, has made um, climate change a, a central element of his platform. Um, in some respects, he was, he was sort of pushed towards that during the primaries um, by the uh, progressive wing of the party. What was interesting for me about uh, what happened with Keystone is that um, TC Energy, the company that wanted to build it, had been Carefully, kind of layering on insurance um, by coming to agreements with unions and uh, with First Nations groups. Um, it even, it even, throughout the possibility of powering the thing with renewable energy. Um, Biden kind of swept that aside. You know, you you might have expected him to at least go through the motions of a of a review process or something to justify getting rid of the of the. Of, of the pipeline. But he went for it on day one, literally on day one. And, and what that suggests to me is that uh, his administration will probably err on the side of moving quickly, probably using more executive orders, because, uh, you know, the Democrats obviously have a very thin majority in Congress. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it would appear to portend a, a, an aggressive stance on climate.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we also, as I say, have other pipelines that are potentially in the sights of the the president. What does it mean for oil supply, though? Because the type of oil that was going to be passed through that pipeline is is different. The the Canadian oil is thicker and heavier oil. What would it have been used for?
4: Uh, Well, typically, those kinds of barrels um, uh, are used to supply uh, what are called distillates, um, so, so diesel being the most obvious one, you know, the the kind of oil we get from uh, Texan shale, for example, tends to be more geared towards producing gasoline. Uh, What's interesting about the cancellation of Keystone XL at this time is that, in effect, it's not really going to matter that much for Canadian supply because of what we've seen with the industry in general having to scale back its expansion plans because, of poor financial performance over the past decade, of uh, the need to conserve cash and pay it out as dividends. Uh, Canadian oil production growth probably wasn't going to be that much anyway over the next, uh, over the medium term. And so in some respects, uh, Keystone XL at this point just wasn't really a pipeline that was needed.
2: Liam, what do we know about uh, President Biden's stance towards uh, the shale patch and and the the fracking industry? Because that's where you know, this is a substantial number of uh, U.S. jobs.
4: Sure. So, um, you know, in theory, uh, he wants to put severe curbs on on fracking. Uh, the, the, the the key issue, probably in the near term, is whether there will be some sort of uh, ban on new fracking on federal lands. Um, that would be a particular issue for states like. New Mexico, um, which, as you may know, is also where his, uh, his nominee for interior is coming from so that's going to be an interesting one to watch um, beyond that, you know one of the things that caught my eye uh, in the executive orders was this move to um, to reinstate a social cost of, of greenhouse gases uh, in terms of uh, federal review. Of projects, And in some ways, that is going to be like a uh, a carbon tax, but it's kind of a stealth carbon tax um, that's introduced when new projects are, are being considered. Uh, and so that could have a big impact on how new projects, um, you know, move from the drawing board into actual investment phase.
3: Liam, we're out of time, but I do want to just mention it with you that Also, Saudi Aramco is causing some controversy today because according to a review of public filings by Bloomberg Green, it's been underreporting emissions, of course, because it wants investors to keep investing. But it's been doing this by quite the large fraction.
4: Yeah, that was a great story by my colleagues. Um, You know, the one point I would just make is that this kind of fits a pattern. We saw it most recently uh, with ExxonMobil, which really had to be kind of pushed into uh, even just disclosing uh, its full uh, carbon emissions footprint. And I think what this speaks to is, look, the oil industry for decades has been trying to uh, obfuscate this issue, Mm. push it onto the back burner. And, uh, you know, we've seen over time the industry has been forced to disclose more. and, And Aramco's behavior, I think, just fits with that.
2: Right. Liam Denning, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts always on the global energy space. He's energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can reach and read his work and all the other work for Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com opinion or O-P-I-N-G-O
0: on the terminal. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade
2: Five Market Drivers in a Biden Administration. That is the title of a recent column by Barry Ritholtz. Barry joins us today. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also the founder, chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, the reasons to be bullish on stocks, they continue to mount. How are you viewing things in a Biden administration?
5: So... It's the battle between bulls and bears is really the battle between which matters more, expensive stocks or even bigger stimulus. And so far, it looks like stimulus is winning.
3: Yeah, but Barry, we keep hearing about the stimulus. But even Nancy Pelosi said today that it won't, you know, she she put it in positive terms and said the Democrats would be ready in February. I mean, why aren't they ready now?
5: Um, you got me. I, I, I looks like the new administration hit the ground running yesterday with a lot of. They're checking off a lot of boxes. They're freezing a lot of things that the predecessors had done, and they're overturning a bunch of the the more egregious um, policy issues. I, I think they need people to wrap their head around a, a 1.9 billion dollar trillion dollar CARES Act three. Before they introduce the infrastructure bill, I don't know if people remember, but this week is infrastructure week, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, as we've heard every year for the past four years. And uh, the, the Green New Deal is another part of that. And and nobody is really talking about Medicare expansion, uh, the the you know new Obamacare expansion. When we added thirty to thirty-five million people. To the roles of insured, suddenly you had a huge new swath of consumers going out and buying, uh, consuming uh, medical services and pharmaceutical services and hospitals. It was a huge, no pun intended, shot in the arm for the sector. I don't know what numbers they're talking about. I've, I've read 20 to 25 million Additional people added to the to the insured roles, so you you take those factors and you add them together. That's somewhere between five and ten trillion dollars over the next ten years. That's a lot of stimulus.
2: So talk to us about stimulus and, and how important is that? I mean, there are some that are suggesting, boy, there's already a lot of liquidity in the market. There's a lot of money, maybe even from the most recent nine hundred billion. Round that hasn't been spent. What do you say to those that say, "Hey, let's tap the brakes on this a little bit"?
5: You know, you have to put it into context of the what we learned from 2020, and and there were a lot of good and bad lessons from the entire year. At least speaking economically, the 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 good news is that we passed a 2.1 trillion dollar first cares act, and the after-tax net cumulative income to U.S. consumers was a trillion dollars. That was about a uh, 8% bump year over year. That, that was huge in the midst of a giant recession. And the way that manifests was not just income, but uh, savings rates went up, credit card delinquencies fell, and retail sales, not only did they recover, they passed the pre-pandemic levels. So... That's our frame of reference. What we noticed uh, at the end of, of last year was how that had faded. And so we, we extrapolate from that into what this new uh, CARES Act 2 is going to do.
1: <clears throat>
5: and that assumed that we were kind of partially reopened. What, we're, what people seem to be forgetting is we have this massive new surge that has in the virus that has not peaked, We are probably looking at not just a national mask mandate, but a whole bunch of local, state, and maybe even federal lockdowns as this gets worse and worse. I mean, 4,000 deaths a day are just, it's just unthinkable. And so I think the new CARES Act is going to be part of, here's how we're going to bang this out. We're going to just shut down for three weeks, and here's enough money to carry everybody through, and that's how we'll get on the other side of this. And once that's done, the broader economy can begin to recover once we're past the pandemic lockdown and we start to see more and more vaccines. uh, I don't know,
3: Barry. I remember Biden saying that he would not, you know, do a whole federal shutdown. And anyway, at this point, you know, unless the whole world shut down, it seems that, uh, you know, that's not even foolproof either. But we'll see. Maybe maybe there'll be a, a three week shutdown. Barry, what, what would you be looking to buy right now with markets at these levels and yet still optimism seemingly out there?
5: So, you know, it depends on how concerned you are about valuation and, and how aggressive or conservative you are. If you're aggressive, go buy everything. But most people aren't. Most people are more moderate. And if you're a little concerned that stocks have gotten a little pricey, well, the the obvious rotation is... You move some of your uh, capital that's in large cap growth and tech, and you buy what's inexpensive. And, and what we see as inexpensive today is, is really stands out like a sore thumb. The small caps have been are much cheaper than the big caps. Value is at historic levels of cheapness. Next to cro- growth, they they should be after performing terribly for the past decade. Emerging markets are much cheaper than the U.S. And if we do get the sort of stimulus that this administration is talking about, we're going to see the deficits go up, we're going to see inflation peak up, and we're going to see the yield curve. We've talked about this before. Um, uh, Once the yield curve steepens, that means that the money center banks should do better going forward uh, as well as anything related to, to real estate. So there are a lot of options depending on how conservative you want to be, but selling a little bit of what's done great and buying a little bit of what's done poorly, that sort of rebalancing tends to work over the long haul.
2: Hey, Barry, 20 seconds. Just give us your thoughts on just valuation for the market here.
5: You know, the, the to me, the question isn't are stocks pricey because the second half of all bull markets are always pricey. The question is how much of future profit increases is priced into the market already? That's the bottom line. If, if there's room to grow profits, then there's still room for, for stocks to go higher. I'm not sure if it's fully priced in yet.
3: Hmm, interesting. Barry Rittles, thank you. Barry, two words, or possibly three. Who's your master's in business this weekend?
5: Uh, this weekend is Andrew Beer of Dynamic... Beta Investments, they run an ETF yep. that does Three S- words. fund replication, their track record. You got it year. in. Thanks,
3: Barry. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Also, Bloomberg Opinion contributor and a contributor to our show weekly.
2: So it is the first full day for President Biden in the Oval Office for him and his administration. A busy start to his administration for sure. Let's get the latest from Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone uh, from Washington, D.C. Josh, I want to start with just the general tone in the White House as it relates to the administration and the press corps. I saw something on my Twitter feed today, which was really interesting, kind of comparing the highlights from the first press a briefing under president trump versus the first press briefing under uh president biden and boy it was uh, the the differences were just stark what's the feeling within the press score and the white house right now
6: well i mean they're, so they're returning to daily press briefings or at least weekday press briefings that of course has not been the case or was not the case for the last two years under the Trump administration. Uh, Trump's press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, obviously was pretty gleeful uh, in sparring with the press, and, you know, uh, trying to re-change, uh, reframe the narrative. She, uh, Her very first press briefing said she would never lie. Of course, she lied all the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, Biden's team has now come in. Jen Psaki is saying, look you know we're gonna uh, we're committed to sharing information but you know we' we'll, we'll see if, we'll see where it goes she uh, she's obviously deeply experienced in this she uh, uh, you know uh, very smooth uh, in her first appearance I'm sure uh, but uh, I, you know it, it's all, the job up there is to give the view of the president. She said as much yesterday. So everything's with a grain of salt.
3: Yeah, Josh, it was a very interesting news conference. Give us your thoughts on whether you think there might be some kind of a policy to not mention the predecessor, former president Donald Trump. Everything that related to him was either punted to Congress in terms of any impeachment process or just not really answered at all. For example, the question of the current FBI Director Christopher Ray.
6: Yeah, uh, they uh, they really do want to try to I think take the temperature down and just saying the word Trump has a habit of not doing that. So I think we'll see them pull back. We've seen this even on the issue of impeachment. Remember, this is a big question. A lot of stuff Trump, or excuse me, excuse <laughs> me, a lot of stuff Biden wants to do relies on Congress, and Congress, in particular, of course, the Senate is going to be logjam potentially dealing with impeachment. Just this morning, they were asked, "Does Biden think?" That Trump committed impeachable offenses, they won't even go there. They're like, we're leaving this to the Senate. The Senate can deal with this. So I think they really are trying to, you know, stay away from it, take down the temperature. But we'll see. Biden, of course, yesterday had his big speech appealing to inauguration, appealing uh, on inauguration to say, hey, we need unity. Americans need to come together. There's already those signs that, of course, in Congress, it's not going to be all that unified, even on something like the pandemic. So, you know, I think yeah, rubber is about to hit road in testing Biden's series <laughs> that there's some sort of bipartisan Washington ideal that he can return to.
2: All right, Josh, give us what do you think the to do list is uh, for President Biden here in these first days? Well, it sounds
6: like they're going to try to bunk, bunch things into certain themes on certain days. Uh, today absolutely is all about the coronavirus we're going to have a press briefing at four biden's getting his own briefing at two dr fauci is going to join the press briefing remember him you know (laughs) every day we used to hear from him like in march and april but in fact between april and today only once had dr fauci been to the white house podium trump did not at least invite him up there uh, for months and months and months so they we're going to hear it all about Uh, all about that. I'm sure we'll have more information on things like immigration, uh, maybe climate coming forward in the coming days, but uh, you know, they used to say that they had this sort of multi-pronged approach, you know, concurrent crises, climate change, racial inequality, the pandemic, the economy. Now they're sort of Still saying that a bit, but changing their tune. They're like, "Look, this is all about the pandemic." And we reported yesterday that they were—they've been growing increasingly alarmed. They think they've been handed, you know, uh, shambles of an organization by the Trump administration in terms of the vaccine rollout. The virus is just getting worse. There's a new strain that is particularly alarming. Uh, so, really, alarm bells coming in. And now Biden is saying quietly that the pandemic will get worse before mm. it gets better and that we're in for a, quote, dark winter.
3: Josh, these executive orders, are they now policy? Uh, I mean, is is it enough for the president to say that we're back in the WHO and that we're back in the Paris Climate Accord, or, or does, does something need to be enforced?
6: No, he has the power to do that. There's a bit of a mechanic side of it. You know, Paris, for instance, take about a month to take effect. Um, but, you know, the things that are within his power, he can do by executive order, flick of a pen, and that's what we're seeing him doing. But a lot of the stuff that he wants to do, namely anything that requires money, he needs Congress for. And that's why we're going to see this big push uh, to get the new coronavirus, you know, bill. And the, the question is, can they do something in a bipartisan way? Uh, you know, it, it looks like they're maybe already losing appetite to do that. There's two roads in front of Democrats. Can they get a bipartisan bill with Republican votes? Uh, or, you know, can they just ram it through on their own? Uh, they're, they're at least making noises that they would like to do something bipartisan. But of course, the benefit of winning those two Georgia Senate races is that if they have to use a hammer and get things through, they can. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But for now, Biden is trying to do everything he can do unilaterally, but he doesn't have 100 percent leeway. Uh, I'm sure U.S. presidents would love to have the power that prime ministers yep. of other countries have in terms of unilateral
3: for action. sure. Sometimes. Josh, thank you so much. Looking forward to uh, more coverage from you from Washington, D.C. That's Josh Wingrove, our White House correspondent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
2: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.